I want you to imagine that your friend has just returned from a family vacation to a theme park. And he is fighting mad. Livid. He's furious with anger. You're like, oh, why, man? Well, what happened? Well, he says, my kids and I came up to a kid's ride, and right before you get on, they got this big sign that you must be under four feet to ride. So? So they wouldn't let me on. Bro, you're six feet five. Exactly! Can you believe how close-minded they were? Can you believe how narrow? What'd you do? Well, I took my family and we stormed out of there and I screamed on my way out of the park, you bunch of legalists! You're just a bunch of legalists, narrow, close-minded legalists. You let some people ride and some people not. Well, I'm leaving, I'm never coming back, and I'm leaving a nasty comment on your Facebook page and I'm taking my family to a place where you can ride all the rides because fun should be for everyone. What would you say to your friend? Like, where would you start, right? I mean, I, wouldn't you want to say, wouldn't you want to calmly point out, bro, I, I don't think they were trying to be legalistic and I don't think they were trying to be like arbitrary And I certainly don't think they were saying fun should only be for some people. I I think what they were saying with that sign that you have to be under four feet, you have to be a child to ride, is that like you as a six foot five adult, you wouldn't like flourish on this ride. And when I say flourish, I mean you would be decapitated, (laughs) right? Like... So it wouldn't make sense. And not only that, you'd be a danger to yourself, but you'd be a danger to other people. The ride's not designed for you. So you're trying to get in, and the poor kid next to you is now going to fall out because somehow you've gotten on this ride. Like, I, I, don't, I don't think they're being legalistic, and I don't think they're saying fun is for some people. I think that this, like, you just, it wouldn't make sense any other way. Now, if you think that the previous illustration, if you think that that is an impossibly crazy conversation, first of all, you've never worked in retail, but... <laughs> But if you think that that is an impossibly crazy conversation, I would like to submit to you that I believe that is exactly what it feels like to be a ninth grader in America right now when you stand up for what the Bible says about sexual ethics. And some of you are not ninth graders, and you have felt the misunderstand, you felt being misunderstood, you have felt the confusion. You're not a ninth grader at all, and you're saying, Tom, that's what it feels like anytime. The topic of what the Bible says about sex and sexuality and and sort of the sexual ethic, uh, when it comes up, that's what a lot of grown-ups feel right now. You feel misheard. You want to say, whoa, 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 I'm not not sure you really understand what the Bible says. When people find out, let me get this out right at at the start. When people find out that the Bible's sexual ethic has been and and always will be two options. And here's the key. And only two. They are. Number one, complete faithfulness in marriage, where marriage is defined as between one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant of commitment. Okay, complete faithfulness in marriage. Or, number two, utter purity, abstinence. The old-fashioned word was uh, uh, chastity, be chaste and pure. Utter chastity in singleness. And there is no third option. 
Got it? Complete and utter unmitigated monogamy or complete abstinence and singleness. That's it. When people find out that that's what you believe, that that's what the Bible teaches, and you actually stand for that, I'm telling you, in 2021, you, people are going to look at you like, like you're crazy. Like that, 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 that's so legalistic. That's, that's so old-fashioned. Are you, are you against fun? Are you against love? Are you, I think what you'd want to say is, well, no, I'm not sure you're really hearing what the Bible has to say on this topic. For, for example, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 today. So I invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians 6. We'll start in verse 9. I'm in a series called When God Came to Sin City. And we come now to... Uh, Paul is addressing a lot of these questions he got asked about the sexual ethic there in Corinth. And so let me set you up with a little background. Paul has discussed, in chapter 5, he discussed a very specific case of sexual immorality in the Corinthian church. And then in the first part, verses 1 through 8 of chapter 6, he talks about how things had gotten so bad in Corinth. You remember the disunity they, they had with each other? It had gotten so bad that they were actually taking one another to court. There were lawsuits in the church. They were going before a, a Corinthian pagan judge to, to settle. And Paul says, you guys couldn't sort this out with Christian love. Uh, and what does he do? Time after time, we'll see this today. What does he do? Paul brings him back to the gospel, and he says, okay, obviously you've forgotten how you got here. Obviously you've forgotten that a Christian is a rescued sinner. You forgot how you got, what you got, so you fought. With me? That's, that's come up in every message. See, he just keeps bringing them back over and over. See, what happened is, y'all, y'all forgot how you got to this table. You, you came by grace alone. You forgot how you got, what you got, so you fought. Or in this case, in the first eight verses of 1 Corinthians 6 chapter, they ignored the grace with which they'd been imbued. They came unglued and they sued. Okay, so I can do this as long as you'll let me. Like, you, you should not encourage me. The sermon series will go forever. I'll never, okay. Got it? So now he's saying, okay, let, let's go back to that uh, uh, sexual immorality that they talked about in, in, in chapter 5. And this is, this is what I mean. This is a perfect example. When, the, when a secular person looks at a list like this, and this isn't an exhaustive list. He's just giving examples of the kind of behavior. He's saying suing each other is not the kingdom life. It's not going to fit in the loving kingdom of God. Any more than, than trying to get on a, a kid's ride when you're six feet five. It's, I'm sorry, it's not going to fit. Or do you not know, he writes, that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. We're going to see kingdom of God. This is very key. It's repeated. Do not be deceived. Why does he write, do not be deceived? Because um, we are much more products of our culture than we want to admit. And it is very easy to develop blind spots in this issue. So he has to say, do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, one of the great uh, benefits of preaching through books of the Bible instead of just picking some topics throughout the year um, is that uh, sometimes hot-button cultural issues, you don't have to go looking for them. Sometimes they come to you. And so it allows a pastor to uh, sort of briefly address pastorally some things and then move on with the text as the text brings it to you. In this case, I thought now would be an appropriate time to address... Um, of that list, the one in 2021 America that seems particularly charged, the one that is electric, is uh, this uh, men who practice homosexuality, right? It's, a, it's a charged. You, you might call this a hot-button issue. And so uh, to address it, not to spend the whole sermon on it, but to address it, 
I want to address, it kind of depends on where you are in this, I want to address two groups. And um, you, you, sort of have to, you sort of have to figure out which, which group you're in, you know, who, who I'm talking to. Um, but I think two things need to get across on this topic. To the first group, I want to say, and I believe, by the way, I believe this is more and more a dwindling group. I think that this group is getting less and less. For, for better or worse, I think this group is getting less and less. To the group who would say, yes, I'm glad you're bringing this up, preacher. Because not only is that, that, that homosexuality, not only is it on the list. To the group who would say, it, it's, like, it's like the gold medal of sins. It is so egregious and so offensive that it's different somehow than all these other sins. And it, it, it's, like, it's like gold medal sin. And, and that, it, it's like borderline the unpardonable sin. To that group of people, I would want to say, notice it is on the list. It's not the gold medal. It's not the unpardonable sin. It's not somehow more egregious. Don't pat yourself on the back because all you struggle with is greed. Don't pat yourself on the back because you don't wrestle with a particular sin. You see, it's, it's on the list. But it's, no, it's a sin, but it's no more or less than any other sin. And I think we have to address that. We have to be honest in saying Christians have not historically done the best job of handling the issue of sex, especially homosexuality, especially in the public square. All too often, Christians have been known for what? Condemnation and hate. And we need to acknowledge that as a church. We've not done a good job handling this. And often what we're guilty of is something that goes like this. We take the sins that we don't happen to struggle with, or maybe nobody knows we struggle with, and we elevate those to the real serious sins. But the sins we happen to struggle with, those are the ones that are pardonable. Come on. right? Everybody wrestles with those. Those are going to be no big deal. Whereas these, we're going to elevate these. Come on. That's wrong. And so practicing homosexuality is a sin, but it's no more or less than any other sin. But there's another group. That's the first group. But to the group who, and I believe this is the group that is growing. I could be wrong, but this is the group I, I think is growing. To the group who would tend to be more progressive on this, on this issue. And, you, and you, I mean, you look at this, and you, 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 I mean, you're living your life day to day, and you know, I mean, you have all sorts of coworkers, and you even have family members that, are, that are identify as LGBTQ community, and they're such an impossibly nice people and incredibly kind. And you go, well, maybe, you know, maybe the, maybe, and, and, and maybe you're, you're hearing on TV, the preacher said, you know, it's actually not in the New Testament. And so you're starting to scratch your head. You're going, well, maybe I got this all wrong. Maybe it's, maybe, maybe the church has misread this. Maybe that, 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 that was for a particular culture and time. Or maybe the Greek words mean something different. And, and maybe it's not a sin. So to that group, I would want to say, it's on the list. Right? So really, I guess my message, ironically, is the same for both groups. To this group, I would want to say, it's on the list, okay? It's not, it's not the exclusive sin. It's not the unpardonable sin. It is no more or less. It is a sin. It's on the list. And to this group, I would want to say, in the New Testament, it is, in fact, on the list. I think that that is, um, you just need to know, going to become more and more utterly inconceivable to your culture. You just need to know that. That they're going to look at you like you're completely insane and crazy. Like, how could you possibly believe it? And, and, And there it is. Now, back to the point at hand. That doesn't mean that God is being arbitrary or capricious. Like, he made up a list of rules on the back of an envelope, or better yet, a stone tablet. And now they're being sort of applied to everyone arbitrarily. 
It is rather that the creator God has unveiled his genuine model for humanity in Jesus the Messiah. And there are certain ways of behaving which just won't fit in his coming kingdom. If you want to be a truly, fully human being, those ways of behaving have to be left behind. Coming on board God's kingdom while still being a person uh, uh, th- th- sorry, th- th- that engages in these behaviors is a liability for the person themselves and everybody else, just like uh, uh, getting on that theme park ride. It's very easy to be blind. Tim Mackey, one of the founders of, or maybe the founder of um, the Bible Project, he has a great way of conceptualizing this. He says, look, <clears throat> to a secular world, if there's no coming kingdom, right, Christians believe, not that you're going to float off and go to heaven when you die, but that bodily, physically, right, heaven is coming to earth. That is going to come in its fullness. Right now we experience it in part. Everywhere uh, God's kingdom is advancing in the earth. That's why, we, that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Lord, let your kingdom come. So we live in this already, not yet. Oh, but it's coming. Now think about it. If there is no coming kingdom, if that's your worldview, if there's no coming kingdom, then the Bible's sexual ethic makes no sense at all. Why would it? You know, when you tell somebody you're supposed to remain sexually pure until covenant marriage, and that marriage is defined between a man and a woman, and it's a big deal when sexual integrity is broken. Well, that sounds legalistic to most people, and to a lot of people it just sounds laughable. But if you believe there is a coming kingdom, that Christ is coming, and there's this new creation on its way, don't know when, oh, but he's coming. So imagine a world, as Tim Mackey says, imagine a world. Can you imagine it with me? Imagine the coming kingdom of Christ. Imagine a world where there's completely healed and restored relationships, where I have intimate friendship and community with people who fully know me just as I fully know them. And in our community, there's unconditional acceptance and grace and collaboration and community. In that kind of a world, sexual integrity makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Take greed, for example. Why on earth would you care about greed if there's no coming kingdom? Listen, if this life is all there is, greed shouldn't be on that list. Greed should be celebrated. Hey, it's doggy dog out there, y'all. Go get all you can in this life. This life's like one big shopping spree. Get, and you've only got a limited amount of time. Get everything you can. Ah, but if there's coming a world, if there's coming a kingdom where everybody's going to leave their doors unlocked all the time, some of you are like, I do that now. Well, God's kingdom's already in your little area of the country. Good for you, okay? That's a little foretaste of what's coming. Yeah. If, that, if, that's, the, if that's the case where everybody's going to leave their doors unlocked and everybody can leave their hearts unlocked to one another all the time, well, greed would have no place there. Don't you see? We can't have greed there. Why? Well, th- th- that would mess everything up. Take drunkenness. If there's no resurrection, if there's no coming kingdom... Honestly, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. Oh, but if there's a coming kingdom, see? If we're going to have this, 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 this place where there's, we're fully known and there's this, this community. Oh, so again, I quote N.T. Wright. It isn't that God has an arbitrary list of rules and if you break them, you won't get in. It is rather that his kingdom will be peopled by humans who reflect his image completely and behavior in the present, which distorts or defaces that image, will lead us in the opposite direction. Now, this is pretty heady stuff. All this can be very complicated. So I doubt, I mean, I, re, I, I wrote this part of the message in my mind. I wrote this for a ninth grader who this week is sitting down in his school cafeteria and somebody asks him like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you really think sex outside of marriage is wrong? Or like, um, whoa, whoa, whoa. You really, 
You really, like homosexuality, that's, that's really your stance? What if you're a middle schooler? Okay, what, 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 if you're in your, what, what if you're a high schooler and you're in your cafeteria and, so, and that question comes up? I doubt you're going to say, I mean, I would love for you to say this, but I doubt you're going to put the school pizza down, slide it aside. I doubt in that moment you're going to say, well, you see, I believe my Messiah Jesus has inaugurated a new kingdom and we live in the already not yet anticipation of that kingdom and the coming kingdom is one of complete love and intimacy and friendship and so sexual integrity is necessary in such a place because in anticipation of that coming kingdom I'm living my current sexual ethic in light of the eschatological hope of the one who is to come okay like I would love for that to happen I don't think that's going to happen but I hope, you understand the, I hope you understand the thinking behind it at least, right? I hope you understand that, that the sexual ethic is grounded in eschatological hope. Because this is the coming kingdom. And, and more and more, his kingdom is, is, is pushing back the darkness, y'all. It's coming. It's happening. And the church is praying, let your kingdom come. As more and more of that comes, then there's less and less room, room for anything that would oppose it, okay? But I don't think, I think that's, that's pretty sophisticated. So instead, I thought of something for high schoolers. But it didn't, I mean, anybody can use it. But this is what you can say. In 2021, what is an appropriate cultural response to a secular world that would look at this and say, this is legalistic, this is narrow, this is, this is insane, this makes no sense. Why does all this matter? You ready? Here it is. You can quote. You don't have to, it's up to you. But if it helps, I offer it to you. Because the other was really long and hard to remember. You ready? So that's what you really think? That's your view. Yeah, I don't get to make the rules, period, that's it. I don't get to make the rules. I didn't come up with that. Um, There's a long story. Basically, it was a panel discussion, and this guy was an evangelical Christian, and he was in Portland, and he was just getting grilled, and they were just, and you could tell the whole room was getting heated, and he was, you know, and finally everybody was just screaming at this guy about his stance on all this, and he just leans into the mic, he goes, yeah, I I don't get to make the rules. The more the years go by, and I heard that years ago, I have been convinced of the wisdom of that simple comment, and here's why. It prevents you from having to be defensive about anything as a Christian because it immediately reminds everybody you are one under authority. How could you think this? Why would you design it this way? Whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't design anything. <laughs> right? I mean, you don't have to turn into a surfer when you say it. Cuckoo, cachoo, guys, chill. But I'm, but, whoa! I don't get to make the rules. I'm one under authority. Like, there's an ancient. I I trust in the risen Messiah Jesus, and he trusted this book, so I trust this book. I don't get to make the rules, right? So you don't have to be defensive, and you can even admit, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible. I wouldn't have done it this way, but I would have done it badly. His ways are higher than my ways. Hey, there's a lot of stuff I don't understand. Well, why did God do it this way? Whoa, why did God do it this way? Say that question back to yourself. The only person who could truly answer that is God. I don't get to make the rules. And it ever so subtly does something else. It ever so subtly plants a seed if the person talking to you is intellectually honest. It plants a little seed. And the seed is, 
in your world, you do get to make all the rules. You're absolutely the king of your universe. You can make all the rules you want. As a secular humanist, you can invent and change and swap. You do get to make all the rules. In fact, you might look at a list like this and say, I don't want all of it thrown out. I just want three-eighths of it thrown out. I want that gone. We definitely, greedy, thieves, keep that in there. That's still a sin. But this is not, ah, you see what you're doing? You have set yourself in the place of judgment, and you make the rules. And just as a side note, it's just a little ironic that Christians who stand for scriptures like this get accused of being arrogant. But you tell me which is more arrogant, to say, I don't get to make the rules, or to say, I am the Lord of all things, and hereby get to make all the rules. I just think it's ironic. That's all. And if your friend is honest, he or she will, that seed will grow and they'll have to wonder why in their worldview they do get to make the rules. So what do we do with all this? Where's the hope? The other thing that makes a sermon like this tricky is that with issues like this, they often come with shame, fear, regret, uh, and uh, you're desperate for some good news. And so I want you to know there's good news. And I want you to hear every word of this sermon covered in grace to you today. This is a word of grace. Look at this good news. Look at the, look at the next thing Paul says. What do, you do with, what do you do with a list like this? Look at what he says next. And such were some of you. Paul does what he always does. He takes this sweet Corinthian church by the hand and he brings them right back to the place it all started. He brings them right back to the gospel. Let me ask you, church, when you read that, if there's just a shred of a judgmental attitude, can't you just feel it drain right out of your body? You read that, you go, yep. That's all a Christian is, is a forgiven sinner. And that's why there's no place for judgment in the life of a Christian. He says, that's what a Christian is, rescued. And such were some of you. In every church, in every community, you've got, a, you've got a bunch of rescued sinners coming together. There are those who've broken every one of those sins and those who've been broken by those who have uh, broken those sins. Deep wounds abound. And Paul says, now what did God do when he found us in such a state? Did he say, nope, I want nothing to do with you? No, that's where he found you and you were washed, he writes. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. There's the the triune God saving sinners. You see that? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. What does that mean? That means God from start to finish did this. It means not a single one of you could and not a single one of you was ever ever asked to. You don't clean yourself up and get yourself all holy and righteous and then go to God. You just run to God. He'll clean you up. He loves you. You ever heard the old preachers say, God loves you just the way you are and he loves you too much to leave you that way? Well, that's justification and sanctification. Justification. God declares guilty sinners as innocent because of Jesus Christ. Sanctification, the process of being made more and more holy and more and more like Jesus, more and more reflecting that coming kingdom. He saved. He tells the Corinthian Christians, he washed you, he sanctified you, and it cost the blood of Jesus Christ. It was in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit who now dwells in you. So because of who you are, this is so important. He, he's about to get practical and he's about to talk about pure living, but he, the, the, in, the imperatives are grounded in the indicatives. In other words, it's who you are. Therefore, live this way. 
the gospel is never live this way and maybe just maybe you can become a child of God. It's because of what God has done. He made you. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He bought us. He adopted us. And now because of who we are in Christ, live a certain way. And so that's why I've got some notes here. I want to close just with some, some applications, some points you can write down. And they all start the same way. I will be pure because. They start, I will be pure because. And each one follows that same parallel structure. One technically, I deviate a little bit from it, but you, you'll see why. I'll be pure because. Here's the first one. I'll be pure because I'm free. And if, um, if you were here uh, almost three years ago, I preached a, a, a series that, uh, even if you don't remember the sermon, a lot of people remember the sermon video that came before it. Uh, it I called it Ducks in a Row. And, oh, okay, some of you are here for this, yeah. And the video that came before it was these ducks crossing a highway, and, like, everybody's blood pressure went up every week. Like, they're going to die. But uh, thankfully, no ducks were harmed in the filming of that sermon. They all made it across safely. But I, I, I talked about body, our bodies, and, and the purity of our bodies in that uh, sermon series. And so we're going to cover that same text. We're going to cover those, those same verses. So some of this may be, I uh, hope, uh, familiar to you. But the first is, I'll be pure because I'm free. Paul realizes what he's up against. The Corinthians have a lot of slogans. And so he uh, has been, you know, he's got this letter and uh, their, their, their whole sexual ethic is, is in a mess. And one of the Corinthian slogans is this. All things lawful. All things lawful for me. Paul writes back. Okay, okay, let's talk about that. Now, all things lawful. This was a Corinthian slogan. It sounds, honestly, it sounds very modern. You can almost imagine somebody in 2021 saying this. Um, you ever heard anything like this? Hey, if it ain't hurting anybody, what's the problem? As long as I'm not hurting anybody else, what's the big deal? Same thing in Corinth. In Corinth, the slogan was, all things lawful. If it feels good, do it. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth, right? All things lawful. And then, can you imagine? Then the gospel comes to Sin City, and it gets even more complicated because now you got baby Christians, and the first thing Paul tells them is, you're completely free in Christ. And they're like, woohoo, right? See, all things lawful. We're not under law, we're under grace, so anything goes. Paul doesn't deny all things lawful. Watch what he does. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful or beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. See, this is incredible to me. Uh, the, the specific issue, because he brings it up in a couple verses, the specific issue that the Corinthian church had written to Paul. You know, remember he had been there a year and a half, then he left to go on missionary journeys, and this church plant writes him, and they say, hey, we need some help. And one of the questions they bring up is, listen, we don't know what to do with this. Some Christians in our church think this is fine. Other Christians think this is a big deal and we shouldn't do it. It's like a gray area. I don't know, could go either way. And all things are lawful, so we've got that freedom in Christ. So like, Paul, what do you think? The issue is, uh, should uh, we be allowed to go and visit the temple prostitutes in Corinth? That is an amazingly measured pastoral response. Imagine if you got that letter, right? Or I got that letter. The response would have been, are you insane? Right? <laughs> Paul doesn't do that. Paul says, well, all right, all things are lawful, but you're asking the wrong question. Because truly free people don't ask what's lawful, as in what can I get away with? Truly free people have been freed from sin's prison, and they never want to go back. They don't want to be dominated by sin's 
addictive power anymore. In fact, when you ask, what can I get away with? You've just proven that you are not, in fact, free. What can I get away with is a question that someone without freedom asks. Who asks the question, what can I get away with? I'll tell you who. The kid in the back of the classroom with a really strict teacher. He's always asking, what can I get away with? What can I get away with? And the more he tries to get away with it, the stricter the teacher has to be. And takes away this freedom. It takes away that freedom. It takes away all freedom. Until finally the kid's desk is literally right there at the teacher and can do nothing. You may not move, right? And the whole time he's thinking, what can I get away with? Right? What can I get away with? You see? On the other hand, someone with unlimited freedom realizes, well, the question is not what can I get away with. Since I can quote unquote get away with anything if you want to word it like that. Then the question is, what is beneficial? What's helpful? It's a question of the free. Free people enjoy their freedom, but they know that sexual immorality has the power to make you an addict, a slave to sin. So yes, all things are lawful, but Paul says, why would I want to be mastered by anything? No, you're free. So church, live pure because you're free. A lot of people think, well, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta, you know, live pure and then maybe I'll achieve freedom. In Christ, you are free. So live out the reality of who you are in him. I'll be pure because I'm free. Second, I'll be pure because I'm a soul. I'm not just a soul, I'm body and soul. So you see, I'm gonna go over the the points again for anyone who says, well, you go too fast. Don't worry, I'll go over these again. But I'll be pure because I'm not just a soul, I'm body and soul. Look at verse 13, another Corinthian slogan. They would say, hey, Food, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. You see that? Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. So Paul says, all right, you see what the Corinthians are saying? Hey, man, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. God made me with certain uh, physical appetites. I'm craving a certain type of food. This food exists. I eat the food. Problem solved. If uh, it must be, the innuendo is obvious. Sometimes I get cravings for a certain type of food. I fill it. I figure if God gave me a craving for a certain type of lust, indulge. No different. Paul says, no, it is different. It's a question of purpose. The stomach is created to have one purpose, to be fed. And food has one purpose, to be eaten. But your body is not a stomach. You are not just one big appetite. Now, let me say that again. I think that bears repeating in 2021. I think that foundationally and theoretically, there's a lot of identity issues where this is being misunderstood. Your body is not just one big sexual appetite. So when you're hanging out this week and you hear somebody say, hey man, food for the stomach, stomach for food, God will destroy them both. Paul's epic clapback is, no, it's not food for the stomach, stomach for food, anything goes. It's the body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. It's not food for the stomach and the stomach for food. It's the Lord for the body, the body for the Lord and the Lord for the body. The thinking that was going on in the Corinthian church, it's, it's very modern. The thinking was, my spirit is intact, who I am on the inside. God came to save my soul. The physical body, just, it's just not that important. It, it, it doesn't matter, right? A casual sexual encounter, it's, it's no big deal. Why? Because my soul is what really matters. Don't ever give your heart away, you might hear somebody say. But your body is just your body. Paul's saying, whoa, no. Why do I say that's very modern? Well, one way to understand the theology of a particular time and place and culture is to study the lyrics of pop music. Can I share with you some lyrics uh, from a fairly recently radio hit uh, from an artist called Lady Gaga? 
Her song is called Do What You Want With My Body. Now listen carefully. What is the theology behind these lyrics? What is the worldview? And you tell me if it's at all different from 1 Corinthians. Listen. Her lyrics say, you can't have my heart and you won't use my mind, but do what you want with my body. Do what you want with my body. See? My soul, my heart has to stay intact. But my body is nothing. She goes on. You can't stop my voice because you don't own my life, but do what you want with my body. Do what you want with my body. Sometimes I'm scared, I suppose. If you ever let me go, I would fall apart if you break my heart. So just take my body and don't stop the party. Now it breaks your heart, doesn't it? Don't, don't you want to go up? Don't, don't you want to put your arm around this pop star and say, Oh, but Mrs. Gaga, <laughs> you're a person. You're, you're body and soul. You can't just say, Well, God will deal with my soul, and my, my soul's here, and my body is just, I can do I, that. that you're not just a soul, you're body and soul. Don't you see what Paul is saying? He's saying to the Corinthian church, look, if, if all you thought God cared about was to save your soul and your, your body, do what you want with your body, that's no different. But our, 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 our thinking is not, well, God only cares about the soul. That's why when you die, your body goes in the ground and our souls like float off to heaven or something. Well, no wonder our doctrine of the body is all wrong. I, I do, here's another irony. Uh, I do think it's ironic. I, I don't know. I've never seen this in writing. But my hunch is, uh, philosophically, my hunch is that Lady Gaga would, be class, would classify herself as a humanist in terms of worldview, humanistic worldview, which means man is the measure of all things. That's why the ethic, the prime ethic is don't hurt anybody, don't hurt another human, love everybody. Humanism, right? Uh, there's no God but, but humanism. Um, it's interesting to me that if, if I'm right, if she's a humanist, it's just interesting to me. I just want to point out that um, uh, she got out-humanized by the Bible. Like, it seems God cares more about her body than she does. It, it turns out God cares more than this person who's supposedly celebrating the human body. I just think it's interesting. Um, why do I say that this comes from a, a, a resurrection mentality? Look at how Paul sort of grind, grounds this whole, uh, this whole creed. Our creed is not we believe in an immortal soul. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Now, now stay with me. The reason your body matters is you're not just a soul, you're body and soul. So you've got to get out of your heads and so many people, they, they don't know it, but there's a lot of Christian people whose theology is actually more Lady Gaga than it is New Testament. They think they're going to die in the body, whatever, but then my soul is going to like float off to heaven. And that's why you always picture heaven, you're on a cloud, I guess, because you can float because you don't have a body. So you're on a cloud. Though you have a harp, how does the harp float? Okay, already I'm poking holes in the, this is not the vision the New Testament has for heaven. In the New Testament, heaven comes to earth. There is going to come a day, y'all. It might be t later today. It might be tomorrow. It might be a thousand years from now. But there will come a day when the sky will rip open, the trumpet will sound, and the Lord Jesus Christ will bodily, physically return. And when he does, the dead in Christ shall rise. Those bodies that are in the ground. You've been to a funeral, been to a Christian funeral, that person died in the Lord, that body went in the ground. Or they were cremated, and so the cremains are in the ground. Or they fell into the ocean. With a roar, the sea will give up their dead. He will find your molecules. 
And he will resurrect that physical, tangible body. He will resurrect it and glorify it and make it suitable for glorifying him forever on a new heaven, new earth. Heaven coming to earth. No more crying, no more pain, no more... Why? Because there's a new kingdom here. Our king, he'll reign forever and ever. Bodily, physically. See? The reason you treat your body with sexual purity now is in anticipation of that coming bodily kingdom. See? So Paul's saying, get your theology right. You're not just the soul. Your body and soul. I'll be free. I'll be pure because I'm free. I'll be pure because I'm not just a soul. I'm body and soul. Three. I'll be pure because I belong to Christ. He writes in verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? So to answer your question, should we go and sleep with temple prostitutes? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. Here he quotes Genesis. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Paul's saying, look, you're a Christian now. You have a whole new identity. This united in Christ thing's a little hard to get your brain around. So think of it like this. You belong to Jesus. Married people know what it means to give yourself over to someone, to belong to someone. You've heard the vows to have and to hold. Paul says this logic is as old as Adam and Eve. He quotes Genesis. The two will become one flesh. So he's saying, Christians, you belong to Christ. You've been united with Christ. So you can't belong simultaneously to the Messiah and to a temple prostitute. What's the modern day application? There's no such thing as a casual sexual encounter. What you do sexually, you do with your whole self, not just your soul or whatever, or not just your body. What you are as a Christian and what you do as a Christian, you are and do with your whole self, not just the spiritual part of you. And so if you belong to the Messiah, body and soul, how can you unite with another if you belong to Christ? I'll be pure because I'm free. I'll be pure because I'm not just a soul, I'm body and soul. I'll be pure because I belong to Christ. And fourth, and this is really a how-to, not really a because, I'll be pure by running, not fighting. Uh, here Paul gets real practical, real specific. When it comes to issues of sexual purity, uh, some young people want to know how far is too far and how, what can I get away with? He says that's the wrong way to look at it. Look at his scripture verse, verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Any questions? The goal is not to see how close to immorality can I get and still not sin. The goal is to run as hard and as fast as I can toward the holiness of God. To the love of God. To, to turn my back on sexual immorality and flee, run. Some people say, oh, I'm, I'm struggling in this area. I'm wrestling in this area. Think about the verbs we use. I'm, I'm really fighting. Pastor, I'm fighting in this area. Well, I mean, I would never say this, but what I want to say is, well, there's your problem. You're not supposed to be fighting. You're supposed to be running. This isn't a battle to fight. It's flee. Run for your life. Flee sexual morality. And this is, I'm not trying to be legalistic about it. It's going to look different for different folks. Some people can watch something with no temptation at all that would be great temptation for another. But everyone knows that moment when you gotta, you got to close out that movie or close out that website or get out of that conversation or put down that magazine or put down that movie. Flee! Is it Right? This is not for fighting. This is for running. Isn't there, some, isn't there a scripture somewhere that says, you got to know when to hold them? Know when, and it's not in there. Know when to walk away. Well, this is when to run, okay? Flee. I'll be pure because I'm free. I'll be pure because I'm not just a soul, I'm body and soul. I'll be pure because I belong to Christ. I'll be pure by running, not fighting. I'll be pure because I will either display God's glory now 
or never. Let me explain what I mean by that. Life is short. God gave you this body, and it is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Look, look, look at what he writes in verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You have a chance to display God's glory. And you'll either do it now with this earthly body, in which case you'll do it forevermore. Or if you reject, you say, I don't want to be a saved sinner. I don't want to be a rescued sinner. I don't need your rescue, Jesus. I despise what you did for me on the cross. I don't need that. You'll never display his glory. It's now or never. We have a chance to honor God with our bodies. Life is so short. And Satan wants you to think that if you're struggling in this area, there's no hope for you and there's no redemption for you. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. Don't listen to the condemnation. Are you going to listen to the lies of the enemy or to the still small voice of your Savior today? You can, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, Christian. You can try to ignore the Holy Spirit, but you can never for one second tell the Holy Spirit to go on a three-week vacation so you can do what you want. Why? Because you are where he dwells. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. It's a gift from God. So I will be pure because I can either display God's glory now and forevermore or never. Oh, display his glory now in a holy life. The last one, Paul saved the best for last. I'll be pure because I'm free. I'll be pure because I'm not just a soul. I'm body and soul. I'll be pure because I belong to Christ. I'll be pure by running, not fighting, because I will either display God's glory now or never. And last, I'll be pure because I have been purchased. There will never be a moment when you can stop being Christian, someone who was bought at an infinitely high price. For the climax of his argument, Paul switches metaphors from the temple to the market And I want you to look at verse 19. The ultimate reason to be pure, the ultimate reason why you must glorify God with your body, because it's not your body. Look at what Paul writes. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The, uh, I think during the Ducks in a Row uh, uh, series, I illustrated this point, um, and uh, got, got a pretty good laugh when uh, uh, I, I, I asked uh, somebody in the crowd if they had a pencil I could borrow. And I think, I went back and looked at the video. I think it was, it was Matt Dillinger's pencil who offered me a pencil. And I took his pencil and uh, brought it up on the stage and uh, pointed out that it was a nice pencil. And as I'm talking about it, snapped it in half. Then snapped it again. Then threw it on the ground and began stomping on it. Then I collected the little scraps of pencil dust that were left and dutifully brought them back to my brother Matt and said, here is your pencil back, right? And then came back to the pulpit. You could have heard a pen drop. People were like, you just did a crime. Like, in church, like, you're not supposed to do that. Like, you just, that was the most savage thing I've ever seen. You just took the guy's pencil and you smashed it. And then... I, uh, of course, let the church continue to think that to build the tension more and more. And just about the time um, uh, they were uh, calling for the Coleman Police Department uh, to make the arrest, uh, just before, I um, uh, let the whole church in on the fact that uh, just before the service, I went to my friend Matt and said, hey, buddy, I'm doing this sermon illustration. It's going to need a pencil. So here, take my pencil. He's okay. 
put it in his pocket. And I said, then when I get to the end, and I'm going to ask for a volunteer. Oh, who, who could it be? I will have secretly planted you with the pencil, and it'll take my pencil, and I'll smash it. And when I told the whole church that, all the tension just left the room, and everybody laughed. I'm like, well, why? Because ownership matters. And everybody got the point. If it's your pencil, do what you want with it. If, however, it belongs to another, then you owe the care, the love, the respect in the degree that you care and love and respect the owner. And what he says right here is, you are not your own. Ownership matters. And the number one reason to glorify God with your body, the number one reason for purity this week and for the rest of our lives is that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. And what was that price? Every Christian in here, when you hear bought with a price, doesn't your mind go straight to Calvary's cross? Where was that moment where our bodies were purchased? You know, the musicians are going to come, or Brandon will come and lead us in a time of, 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 of response. I, uh, I think it could really be said this simply. When it all boils down to why we glorify God with our bodies, when it all boils down, in the end, on that Roman cross, isn't it true? It was his body in exchange for yours. It's as simple as that. He uh, could have avoided the pain of the cross. He could have avoided it altogether. Or I mean, theoretically, when he took that body, he could have lived forever in that body. He, I mean, he did innumerable miracles. Certainly, he could have extended human life and had a good life. Instead, he allowed his body to be beaten and stripped, and we were given healing What does that verse say? Washed and sanctified and justified. He allowed his body to be ripped to shreds, spit upon, and hung on a cross that our bodies might be redeemed, glorified. What was that about? It's simple. He was buying your body at the price of his. You were not your own. You were bought with a price. That's what it means to be a People with a biblical sexual ethic. It's people who never get over the fact. See, they forgot what they got, how they got. They forgot how they got, what they got. And that's what they fought. They they forgot the gospel. A bunch of rescued sinners. We were paid for. Bought by Jesus Christ. How do I not owe this good father everything? And his kingdom is coming. And it's a kingdom where there's perfect human flourishing. Why would I not want to live in that now? He paid for you. He bought us. Sometimes you buy something, you say, yeah, let me see the receipt. What's the receipt of this purchase? Oh, there's lots. But I think you could do, you could do a lot worse than the receipt that's found in John chapter 3, verse 16. You know it? For God so loved the world that he gave. That body hung on a cross for you and for me. He gave his one and only son so that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And that, and he's coming back, everlasting life in a, in a body, in new heaven, new earth. Oh, and the kingdom that is coming, it's so good, and our coming king is so loving. Don't we want everybody to see this? Don't we want everybody to live in this human flourishing? And that, that is why this week we can honor God with our bodies. Let's pray.
God, grant us grace. Grant us grace to understand this uh, passage about uh, purity. Grant us grace uh, more and more as, as culture uh, uh, changes and emphasizes uh, different things throughout different periods of time, celebrates certain things, condemns other things, and those things always seem to be changing. Uh, God, grant grace to our people to just sort of get used to being seen as weird on some things. Uh, being seen as different. But Lord, let us be winsome in the way that we're weird. Let us be irenic. Let us be uh, kind, filled with love. Love for one another. Love for a world that desperately needs to hear how much God loves us. God, grant us that. And grant grace to anyone here this uh, filled with uh, condemnation and shame and they're listening to the voice of the enemy. Let them instead hold fast and cling to the hope that's in the good news of Jesus Christ. God, grant us grace. And thank you for your unchanging word. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.